This is the purpose. Jesus is the Christ. Believe and live. You'll get that after we're all finished. And our theme verse is John 20, 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs. And in the next two lessons, Pastor Tom's going to teach, and he's going to tell you what those signs are. Seven signs in the book of John. These seven signs were written, have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is the purpose. He spells it out. This is why he wrote this book. And so we're going to talk about the best gifts that Jesus gives. And tonight I went a little farther from the book of John because there were other gifts that Holy Spirit put on my heart to share with you that aren't in the book of John. So we're going to explore a little bit more in the New Testament. So last week we talked about love, joy, peace, comfort, friendship, and Holy Spirit. Tonight we're going to talk about rest, light, life, eternal life, and part of that is forgiveness as well, and satisfaction. I thought about singing, I can't get no satisfaction, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) There are times where I think about singing, and every now and then I will sing, but yeah, not tonight. (laughs) Satisfaction. So let's, let's talk about rest. Oh, let me back up just a bit. So As many of you know, I led the ladies' ministry here at Global River for about four years. And last February, I went into Pastor Tom's office wanting to lay it down. And when I stood up after meeting with him for an hour, I was still leading it. And I thought, wait, (laughs) how did that happen? And I had to go back to him and say, okay, I really need to lay it down. And, And what I was hanging on to was pursuit, that the ministry that Jan Rickey is now continuing to lead for us. But I had reached a point where I had, I had reached spiritual burnout. And if you're in ministry, you know that there are, times, there are times where we pour out, and we pour out, and we pour out, and we pour out, and then we have nothing left to give. And then if we continue to give, even when there's nothing left to give, this is what happens. We reach burnout. And that's where I was about a year ago. I was numb. I was probably depressed. I just didn't care anymore, and I was ready to be done. And that's where I was about a year ago. And so I laid down ladies' ministry. I laid down my small group that I've led for about nine years. I said, I'm taking a break. The young ladies that I mentor, I said, I'm not mentoring right now. I put my blog on pause, and I just had to stop because I was burned out. And many of you that are in ministry, you know, there there are times when you're filled up and you're healthy, and there are times when you're unhealthy and you can hit burnout. And it's the same even in your jobs when your bosses put heavy loads on your shoulders. We're trying to meet the expectations of family members, expectations of friends, and even neighbors. And we can get worn out just in that rat race of trying to keep everybody happy. Daughters, sons, mothers, neighbors, friends, spouses, bosses. 
And sometimes it leads to what I call false burden bearing. It's bearing loads that, that we aren't meant to carry and that our bodies and our minds just aren't able to carry. So the good news is what Jesus says. And this is on your handout as well as the slide. He says, come to, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Those are some amazing words out of Matthew 11. So Jesus invites those people, those who had been struggling and just heavy laden, carrying heavy burdens, yoked by things they shouldn't have been yoked by, to come to him, and he gives them a promise. If you come to me, I will give you rest. So when you look at the context, well, why would the people he was writing to or speaking to in the book of Matthew, why would they need rest? And a cross-reference, this should be on your handout, Matthew 23, 4. This was about the Pharisees. It said, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves, the Pharisees, are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And so even in the church, we can put burdens on each other, legalism and religion, and then we try to meet people's expectations and appearances. So as I teach, I like to give you a little bit of a how to study your Bible nugget. And so this week, I want to talk for just a minute about doing those things. You either love it or you hate it. Those people that say, well, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, you either love them or you hate them. But if you want to go a little deeper in your Bible study, you don't need a a seminary degree. This is the Strong's Concordance. This is my second one because I wore the first one out, spilled coffee on it, broke the spine, everything. You can pick this up from Lifeway or Amazon. But you can study the words in the original language, and you just, um, the, the example tonight I have is rest, and you just go in the beginning, and you find the word rest, and then the scripture you're looking for, and then you turn in the back of the book. Now, in our digital age, you can go online, and that's the slide that I have for you. It's blueletterbible.com, and I have that on your handout. There's, there are probably other sources, but this is what I use, and I'm sorry, it's a little grainy, but you search for the scripture, And then you click on it, and it gives you, word by word, the Greek or the Hebrew. And so this is the entry for rest. So when I say it's Strong's Greek 373, Anna, Paul, O, that's where I get this. And so it tells me it's a root word. And so I just want to throw that out there to you. If you want to go a little bit deeper, and I've said this before, sometimes during messages when people are preaching, I'll think, I'll think, well, what does that word really mean? And so Brian and I will go deeper sitting over there with our blue letter Bible just to get another layer of scripture. But this is what I like about this word rest. It means to repose oneself, to refresh yourself. It's a state of rest. But I like this definition, to cause or permit one to cease from any movement, any movement, because sometimes even when we go on vacations, we're still not resting. We're still connected. Even on the weekends, we're still, we're still not resting. Cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect his strength. We're always working so hard to please others and, and 
Some of us are trying to work to please God, thinking that we alone, even covered by the blood of Jesus, we're still not enough. We have to make him happy. I don't believe you have to make God happy. Now, we want to please him, but we don't have to strive in order to gain our entrance into heaven. Jesus paid it all for us. That's the gift of forgiveness. But I just want to give you all permission tonight that you can stop. There are seasons we just have to pull away and stop to recover, as it says, and to recollect our strength, to be refreshed. And that's why Jesus says, come to me. Rest means to stop, to stop trying to please everybody, to stop striving, to stop pretending, to take a break, to recover. And what's the goal? It's to just be. And in that season when I was burned out, I wrestled with God because I had done and done and done for so long. And I said, God, I laid on the chairs in the back during a Wednesday night worship, and I said, God, am I a doer or a daughter? Which am I? And I had to wrestle, and then I finally just made peace with, I'm a daughter. Just being with Jesus is enough. It's enough. He wants you, not so much what you can do for him. He, he doesn't necessarily need you to do for him. There are other people that can step in. And so there's a balance there. Jeremiah 31, 25, he says, For I satisfy the weary and refresh everyone who languishes. And so you may be in a place of burnout tonight. If you're not sure, go online and Google symptoms of spiritual burnout because you might be there yourself. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Hebrews 4 says, there's therefore a rest for the people of God. And so there's that balance of, even having a Sabbath for yourself. And that can be however you want that to be. That's to do what refills you. For me, it's working in my garden and pulling weeds. And that's still work, but that's where I regain my strength. That's where I lay it all down. For me, it's making note cards, drinking coffee, burning candles, and watching Netflix for a couple hours on a Saturday morning. That's how I recover and regain my strength. So Jesus says to take his yoke upon you and learn from him. So what is that yoke that he's referring to? He wants you to lay down the yoke of people, but he wants you to take up his yoke. And it's a yoke of discipleship. He says, learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's the yoke of Jesus. It's discipleship. It's learning from him. And he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But I love how he describes himself. There are only, I think, three words in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself with an adjective. I am blank. And so two of them I'm going to show on the slide. It's in this verse. I am gentle and I am humble. That's him described, like I would say, I am bubbly. Jesus says, I am gentle, and I am bubbly. And the third, if you're curious, it was when, um, it, was, it was in a miracle, but he says, I am willing. Lord, if you are willing, he says, I am willing. He was willing to heal. Humble means made low. So Jesus says, I'm willing to make myself low. And gentle, mild-spirited. Sometimes I'm not very mild-spirited, but Jesus is mild-spirited. 
Some examples of his humility, he was born in a stable, raised by peasants. He never owned any property. He died a humiliating death. And then he was buried in a borrowed tomb. So that is who you want to come to. That is who your goal is. If you're going to please anybody, try to please Jesus. And there are times I've made people angry because I've said, this is what God is directing me to do, and it was not what they thought I should be doing. So there's always a risk, but we need rest. At the feet of Jesus, you will find rest for your souls, even as battles rage around you. The only true refuge in this scary world is at the feet of Jesus. That's the only safe place. We try to find safety in our bank accounts and in our boundaries and in our social media profiles and in our success, but the only safety is at the feet of Jesus. So Jesus gives you permission to rest, and you might have to wrestle that out yourself. And for me, it took me about six months to recover, but after that time, I slowly picked some things back up. I started meeting with my mentoring girls started working hard on my blog and and traveling and speaking, but I had to find that rest for my soul. So I give you permission to do that. So the application would be, is there an area of your life where you're striving and you're trying to do too much and you don't have a good balance? So go to Jesus and he'll give you rest. He will give you rest. So the next one is light. And this isn't necessarily a a happy gift. I tried to balance the ones to make you feel really good and then the ones that make you go, ooh, my toes just a little bit. So Dela Haynes, who's a part of this body, she came to dog sit for us last August. She stayed in our home. And she's actually coming next week to do that again because our dog, she's she's a a neurotic puppy. So Dela came and, and stayed, and I was nervous about Dela coming to my home and living there for four days. And not that Dela would look in my cabinet doors, but we've all done it. We've all been in somebody's bathroom and opened the cabinet. Ooh, wow, that's how they do that. <laughs> that's what they have. At some point, we're all guilty of, of doing a little snooping. And I wasn't so worried about the dust bunnies that she would find. She was staying in our upstairs, which which stays pretty dusty. But I was worried about what she would see about me. You know, what would she think about the books on my shelves? If she wandered into my closet, what would she think about the clothes hanging there with the price tag still on them? (laughs) We all have at least one or two. Because I have a tendency to collect things. Like I... um, (laughs) I collect fabric. I don't have any use for this. I just thought it was pretty at Hobby Lobby, and I bought it just because I thought it was pretty, and now it makes a nice prop. I have fabric. I have scrapbook paper. I have plates for mosaics. I have jewelry, and I have clothing. I collect things, and we all have things in our lives that we would like to keep hidden. So imagine if we all got in our cars and went to your house right now to look at your stuff. How does that, (laughs) yeah, what if we just all went? Now, it would be fine if there were no electricity or if it were dark, but if we got out our flashlights or if we put the flashlights on our smartphones and we started looking at your stuff, your checking account, your Netflix watch list, your books, your boats and your guns and your sporting equipment and your clothing and your makeup and your jewelry and all your stuff, how would that make you feel? Woo, 
I don't think I want you to come to my house with flashlights. So turn with me to John 3. And we're going to bounce around a little bit tonight in John 3. And this is part of what's called the discourse on the new birth. We're going to start with verse 19. It says, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So one of the ways that I study is I make lists when there are two different things that are compared and contrasted, I will make a chart or I'll make a list. And so in your handout is a comparison or just a small chart of light and darkness. So what did I learn about light? John three nineteen. it's come into the world. Men didn't love it because their deeds were evil. Evildoers hate the light because their deeds are exposed. That's John three twenty. Evildoers do not come to the light. Oh, look, oh, I made a mistake. Good. Makes me more relatable when I mess up on stage. <laughs> John 3:21, he who practices truth comes to it. So that is the light, darkness. Men loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. So what is the point there? The point is this. The light of Jesus reveals sin. The light of Jesus reveals sin. So this is a picture that Brian, um, my husband, drew in early July. And I posted it on Facebook this week just to see what it means to different people because prophetic artwork can say different things to different people. But this one shows the light in the background and it's shining through the heart of man. And there's the rainbow from the prism. So the light of Jesus reveals what is in our heart, and it, and it reveals the darkness. But they didn't, like, they didn't like the light. We don't like the light. Wearsby, one of the commentators that I use, says, Sinners love the darkness and hate the light. They want to persist in their evil deeds, and this keeps them from coming to the light. For the closer the sinner gets to the light, the more his sins are exposed. And I think that's why so many, for, for a long time, they'll resist giving in to Jesus because they don't want their sin exposed or they don't want to give up their sin. And this is why I have a love-hate relationship with prayer, prayer ministry. I've probably been through prayer ministry maybe, maybe eight times in my 20 years in, in church, like in a charismatic church that teaches prayer ministry. And I always love the way I feel afterwards, but I hate it. I mean, I really struggle with the preparation part. And because part of that, you forgive people and you confess your sins. And that confessing sins part, that is really hard for me. Is that hard for anybody else to reveal my messy laundry to someone, of course, in confidentiality? But there's a truth in James 5.16. It says if we pray, confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, then we'll be healed. So as we bring our sin to the light of Jesus, then it's exposed and the power of it is lessened. If everything that you keep hidden in the darkness, its power grows. 
But when you reveal your sin, when you let the light of Jesus shine upon it and reveal it, either confessing it to God or to someone else, the power of it's broken. It can't grow in the darkness anymore. So I encourage you to let Jesus shine light. Let him, let him go through your cabinets tonight. Say, Jesus, is there something I'm hiding that I don't know about, that I don't even, I'm not even aware of? See, Holy Spirit speaking to me right now. <laughs> There's always something. When we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So just ask Jesus, reveal, reveal my sin to me. Shine the light. So the application would be, is there anything you're trying to keep hidden? Do you love the darkness where your sin is covered rather than the light? We all have something, some area where we can be more like Jesus, whether it's our actions or gossiping or our thoughts. So I'll leave that with you. It's a gift, although it's not our favorite sometimes. Okay, so here's a more encouraging gift. So before we came to Global River, I was in what I would call a spiritual dry season. And in our spiritual lives, I've been walking with the Lord for about 25 years. And every now and then, we'll hit a season that's just spiritually hard. And it feels like the Bible is lifeless. I mean, we can just sit and read and we get nothing from it. It feels like our prayers are hitting a ceiling and not going anywhere. We might feel really far from God. And I remember in that dry season, a woman coming to me, and she just gave me a prophetic word, and she said, God has given you an IV, because I was so, it was just so dry, and I was so dehydrated spiritually, and that brought me such hope. And it's like that water bottle, you know, we can be in those dry seasons. So I want to read a scripture for you that's the next gift that Jesus gives us in its intercession. And the context of this is from the book of Hebrews. And about Hebrews 4 through 10, it's about Jesus being our high priest and the mediator of a better covenant. And so that is the context. Uh, Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is an encouraging verse, isn't it? Here's the encouragement. So Jesus is our high priest forever. He is exercising his priestly office on our behalf. So here's a very simple word study. If you look up the word always in the Greek language, it means always. And if you work up Lives, it means lives. He always lives to make intercession for us. And if you've ever studied intercession, it's just, it's not a piddly prayer. It's not just Lord Jesus heal him or Lord help him or today. So I probably shouldn't confess this, but when I'm preparing to teach all day long, I'll be Jesus help me. I'll get on my face. Jesus help me. And at about five o'clock when the rubber hit the road, I said, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Not seriously, but I get to that point where I'm just like, Jesus, help me. And so Jesus always lives. Intercession is not a piddly prayer. It is getting between us and God and getting the answers that we need for our problems. It's getting in the middle. That's what it means to intercede. It's to get in the middle. And Jesus gets in the middle between us and God, and he gets the answers to our prayers. He finds help for us. He finds the help that we need. 
And so why do we need an intercessor? I mean, we're saved. But Jesus is heaven in heaven, and we're still on the earth, and we're dealing with our flesh, and we're dealing with the devil. So we, need, we still need help. So in the pink commentary on Hebrews, which is about three inches thick, it's a very thick book, he says, We stand in urgent need of the priestly care of Christ, that in answer to his intercession, God might send us his spirit, Grant us renewed supplies of grace. Deliver us from our foes. Keep us in communication with the Father. Answer the accusations of Satan. Preserve us until the end of our earthly course. And then receive us to himself. And this is on your handout, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That is what your full-time intercessor is doing for you. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is interceding on your behalf. That's, that's his job in heaven. There might be other jobs, but that's what he's doing for us. He always lives to do it. So what about you? What need do you have tonight where you need intercession? Is it a relational problem? Is it paying the bills? Is it having peace in your marriage? Is it making decisions? Just know that Jesus, your intercessor, as well as Holy Spirit who, who prays through us, there are intercessors on your behalf. You have an intercessor, and that is a gift to you. So I want to talk about hope next. So about 17 years ago, I sat in a small office facing a couple psychologists. We were off Market Street. And it was in this meeting that they were going to tell us what was wrong with our son. Because our Gregory has always been highly intelligent, but at the time he had some communication difficulties and some social delays, developmental delays. He was not meeting all of his milestones. And being the optimist, I thought they would say, oh, he's just got a few delays. You know, everything's going to be okay. But instead, they gave us a six-letter diagnosis, and it was autism. And in that moment, sitting there in the office, it was like every day of his life played out before my brain. And I was wondering, can he drive? Can he go to college? Will he graduate high school even? Will he be able to talk? Will he be able to get a job? Will he like girls? Will he have friends? And in that moment, all of those hopes and dreams were challenged because we didn't know. In that moment, more than anything, I needed hope. That's what I needed, hope. And we all have situations in our lives where we need hope. Amen? We all have situations where we need hope. So the biblical definition of hope in the Greek language is the favorable and confident expectation, a look forward with assurance or the anticipation of good to anticipate something good. And Pastor John Piper defines hope this way. Oh, there's Gregory at three. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident. So as I went through the day preparing and the ups and downs of Jesus helped me when I got down on the floor, 
during that sweet moment of worship, that was when I said, God, you'll be faithful. If I've prepared and prepared my heart, I know I have faith that when I stand on that stage, you will show up because you're faithful. There are times we are not faithful, but scripture says that even when we're unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So that was my hope that even though my flesh felt unsure, when I stood on the stage, he would give me the words because he's faithful. I expected it. The opposite of hope is doubt, discouragement, and despair. And we've all been there at one time or another. When we're in hard situations for a long time with no change in sight, it's very easy to get weary and to let our hope run dry. Even the prophet Jeremiah, he said, my strength has perished and so is my hope from the Lord. That's Lamentations 3.18. So it's hard sometimes to hold on to your hope. But I want to encourage you with a few scriptures tonight. And the first is to, when your hope runs dry, go to the source of hope. And Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. And what's important is that last part. It says, By the power of the Holy Spirit. Not overflow by hope because of your great faith or because of all your study or because of your status or your position or your strength. No. You overflow by hope by one thing, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how you can overflow by hope. So we go to the source. He's the God of hope. And then we overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I studied this, I preached, well, I'm, there's a, I don't know what speaking, teaching, or preaching. I spoke a message last fall, <laughs> taught a message, spoke it, and I spoke two, I shared two messages on hope. And as I studied all of this, my definition of hope was a supernatural grace given to us by God. It's a grace given to us. Like, what is hope? I believe it's a grace given to us by God to expect good things. Amen. So in order to hold on to hope, we have to hold on to Jesus. And I want to show you a couple things in Scripture. If you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy 1.1, there's just a little nugget that we're going to find there that's important. So God is the God of hope. We overflow by Holy Spirit. But in 1 Timothy 1.1, this is just an introduction, and Paul is describing himself. He's introducing himself And he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then he tells them how he's an apostle, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Those four words are very important. Christ Jesus, who is our hope. It it very clearly says that, that hope isn't just a thing, but it's Jesus. Christ Jesus is our hope. And we see the same principle in Psalms. And your, your um, handout is five pages because some of these things I just couldn't leave off. I wanted you to see them. So I've got three scriptures there. Psalm 39.7, it says, my hope is in you. Psalm 62.5 says, my hope is from him. And then Psalm 71.5 says, for you are my hope. 
So if you rephrase, let's see if I can get it right, <laughs> you are my hope to my hope is you. I want to repeat the verses. So it's my hope, my hope is from you, my hope is in you, and the last one is my hope is you. My hope is from you, my hope is in you, my hope is you. Jesus is your hope. So if you want to hold on to your hope, you hold on to Jesus. If you're struggling with depression or anxiety, Jesus is your hope. If you're concerned about your children, Jesus is your hope. If you have hard decisions to make, Jesus is your hope. And Jesus can bring good out of any situation, any situation. You can just look at the cross when all hope was gone, when he was dead. They thought all hope was gone. But the power of the Holy Spirit, which overflows with hope in you, raised Jesus from the dead. And through his resurrection, we can have eternal life. We can have life now and eternally. So Jesus is hope personified. When all hope was lost, he was raised from the dead. So as I close, that's um, Gregory when he graduated from high school. So all of those hopes and dreams were challenged, but God has been faithful. God has really done the miraculous through our son. He graduated high school. He drives. Every job that he's ever had was offered to him. He works here at the church. He was approached to work here at the church, and he's a good employee. <laughs> he's kind of quiet, but he's a good employee. He's graduating university sometime in the next year. He has friends. He drives all over North and South Carolina to meet with his friends. And I won't talk about girls because that's too much information. And I do have his permission to share these things with you. And I want to close up something I shared last week because I shared in the beginning about Gregory's um, some health problems and how the nurse said that he would have all of these side effects and none of that ever happened. None of what she said ever happened. And his health is not perfect, but when the doctors see him, they're like, you're the model patient. You are the model patient. God has been faithful. And that is where I place my trust. God is faithful. I just want to knock it into that brain in those moments where I start to panic. He's faithful. <laughs> He's faithful. So the next gift I want to talk about is, is satisfaction. So I'm just, you're probably figuring out that I'm a little bit vulnerable. A lot of times I go home and I say, why did I say that? But I'll be honest, when I'm struggling, I don't always run to Jesus. I don't always run first to Jesus. What I'll do if I've had an emotionally difficult day, I will text my husband. And I will say, I want to eat French fries. I want to go eat French fries. It's usually like Chick-fil-A um, PT's Grill or Five Guys. I want fries. And then I usually want to go to Belk. I want to go to Belk. I need a, I call it a Belk hit. And usually right after I text him, I'll check the mail. And this will be in the mailbox. And I'll say it was God's will. It was God's will. God's speaking to me. Now, these things come like three times a week. But um, I have a long history with Belk. My father worked for Belk for 30 years. 
he um, ran their pension, and then later it was 401k. So I've got a long history with Belk. I've been going there for many years. I met John Belk as a child, so like close with Belk. Yes. And so we all, we all have something that we do. We all have something that we do when we're struggling emotionally. Some of us may eat chocolate. Some of us may shop, and it might just be consignment shops. You know, the guys get onto the women for all their shopping, but I don't go out and buy boats or bush hogs or jet skis or guns. I buy the $13 necklace at Belk. This is what I got on my Belk kit Friday night. That and earrings to wear when I'm speaking because you can't wear danglies with the headpiece. But we all do something to numb that pain that's in our hearts, whether it's shopping or eating, whether it's TV, it could be too much exercise, and then sometimes we do more destructive things, like gambling or pornography. There are Christians that have written out their testimonies of overcoming pornography. I've got one of those books at home. It happens. It happens. We all have things that we use to anesthetize our internal pain. They're not helpful, but hurtful. But I want to talk about some things that I've found in scriptures about Jesus and how he is the only one that satisfies. And this came out of John 6, and it's called the Bread of Life Discourse. So a discourse is like a long conversation or a debate. I called it his sermons. When Jesus had a long discussion. So the context of the first two scriptures that I'm going to share is when he fed the 5,000. And Pastor Tom will go more into detail about that miracle in the next couple of weeks. But in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Because when we go to chocolate or Netflix or TV or Belk to satisfy ourselves, we're going to be hungry again the next day. We're going to wake up feeling bad again. We just temporarily numb the pain. John 6, 26, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now that's big. He's saying, you seek me not because of the miracles, but because I fed you. I fed you. He didn't feed them only physically, but also spiritually. Only Jesus satisfies. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Other versions say, for they shall be filled. If you hunger and thirst for him, he will fill you. So a couple cross-references, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance. So God is saying, come to me. Why do you spend your money on what doesn't satisfy? Why do you spend your wages on what doesn't satisfy? 
So when, we, when you look at the feeding of the 5,000, it's in all four Gospels. And so I went and looked at every um, passage. And in John, it is found in chapter 6. But what I want you to see was a pattern that I came across. Matthew 14, 20. And they all ate and they were what? Satisfied. Mark 6, 42. They all ate and they were satisfied. Luke 9, 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. John 6, 26. You seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Now when you see something over and over, and there were a lot of other verses, probably about 15 verses altogether from all of those passages, but I just narrowed it down to these four. But it says it over and over. They all ate and they were satisfied. They were satisfied. When you look that up in the Greek, it means satisfied. That's what it means. It means their desires were fulfilled. Their physical hunger was satisfied. So what about a spiritual thirst? I want to talk about that for just a minute. Thirst, according to Webster's, is a strong wish for something, an appetite, craving, I like this, a hankering, a longing, or yearning, or passionate desire for. So I'm going to read from John 4, which is from the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and this is Jesus talking to her, and he's, he's basically sharing the gospel with her, and she gets saved. But he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus offers to quench her deepest thirst. So think about what kind of offer the, what kind of water the earth provides. Like in Wilmington, you're paying high dollar for your water from Cape Fear Public Utility Authority. You pay high dollar. But the water that we get is stuff we have to either work for or draw up or pay for. And this, I'm going to take a sip. It's only going to satisfy my thirst temporarily. It's just temporary. But Jesus offers water that forever satisfies our thirst. So Jeremiah 2.13 is a cross-reference. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the things that we pursue, the things that we pursue to drink from. They look good, but they're empty. They can hold no water. Entertainment, excessive exercise, shopping, relying on friends to give us joy. They're empty. If, you pour, if I poured water into this, it would just all drain down to the floor. It might hold it for a little bit, but it would all drain out. Um, the commentator Pink says, if we do hunger and thirst, it is not because Jesus is unable or unwilling to satisfy us, to satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst, but because we fail to draw daily from his fullness. 
And we've talked about what his fullness is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's his grace. It's his truth. It's Holy Spirit. And we have to go to the source daily in some way or another, whether it's spending time in the Word or worship. Some days all you might be able to do is, Jesus, help me now. That's a prayer I pray. Jesus, help me now. (laughs) It's a good prayer. But we need to go to him daily to stay filled or else we'll be empty. If we go to other things to be filled, people's praise, our success, we're going to come up empty. So we learn in John 7, let's see, is that on your handout? John 7, I don't think I wrote it out. It's John 7, 37 through 39, and this is where Jesus says, it is great. If, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So there's a command to obey, come to me and drink. And then it's coupled with a promise to claim. If you come to him and and drink, he says streams of living water will flow from within. And what I love about this verse is it it speaks to me that Jesus satisfies us not just for us, but for others. Because those streams of living water flow out of us and give life to the people around us. The smile at the cashier, you may be the only one that smiles at them in an hour. When you say, when they ask, how are you doing? And you later say, well, how are you? Or when you say to someone, how's your job? How's your family? It's very easy for me to talk about myself. But I'm learning to say, how's your family doing? How's your job? How are things with you? We want to give life to others. The Holy Spirit in us comes out when we're connected to the source. When we come to him and drink, then those streams of living water will flow out of us. We become channels of living water, Wearsby says, to bless a thirsty world. So application Do you hunger and thirst for him? And and I always say that there's a prayer that God always answers, and it's, Jesus, I want to know you more. If you pray that prayer, I would almost put money on it. He will answer it. If you say, I want to know you more, he will come in and you will know him more. He will answer that prayer. He will answer it. I don't, if you pray, I want to be a millionaire, I can't promise you he'll answer that. But if you say, Jesus, I want to know you more, it's going to start really soon. So that's a promise. So let's look at salvation. If you'll turn with me to John 3. And again, the book of John, it has seven discourses. There's seven signs, seven I am statements, seven discourses. And this one that I'm going to be talking about is the discourse of the new birth. And I've put in your notes a discourse. It's like a sermon. It's like a sermon. So John 3, 1 through 21. It's the story of of Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, he replied, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? Nicodemus should have understood. But let's talk a little bit about Nicodemus so we'll understand why he was so confused. This is on your handout as well. So I teach the five W's and an H. You ask questions of the text and you look to see if you can find a who, a what, a where, (laughs) a where, a where, a how, a why, and a when. So Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Well, the text tells us in verse 1, excuse me, he's a man of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were a group of Jews who were fastidious in keeping the letter of the law. And they, they put burdens on people's backs to cause them to also adhere to that same letter of the law. And Jesus strongly denounced them for their legalism. Verse 1 also says Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. So he was a member of the Sanhedrin or the ruling council. Now, this was um, interesting. I found this on the internet in verse 10, where it says Jesus called him, he said, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things. It said that was equivalent to being a college chancellor. So think about our chancellor at um, UNCW. I can't say his name. What's his name, Brian? Yeah, now Brian can't remember it. But the chancellor at UNCW. Um, So Nicodemus was equivalent to that. And Jesus is like, you're the, you're the chancellor, and you don't understand these things? So he was an important person. <laughs> My peas are popping. So he was perplexed by his need for a second birth. He was cautious and open-minded. He came to Jesus at night. I'm inferring that from the text. And he was courteous. He addressed Jesus as rabbi. So what did he do? Verse 2, he came to Jesus and acknowledged him as a God-sent teacher. And then he was also confused and perplexed. With, he came with these questions. So when did he come? You have to go back in the text just a little bit to dig this out. But John 2.23 discusses the Passover in Jerusalem. And then John 3.1 says now. So it's around the time of the Passover. Where are they? Probably in Jerusalem because that's where the Passover was. How did Nicodemus come? He came in secret. He came at night. Why? He recognized Jesus was sent by God because of the miracles. So this passage is the only place where Jesus talks about being born again. The only place. So two things that he said about being born. John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So you have to do a little bit of research to understand the Jewish perspective on these terms, what they meant to the Jew to understand what this passage is saying. The phrase born of water was a Jewish idiom referring to the gush of amniotic fluid that accompanied birth. 
So it was part of physical birth. It's not talking about baptism, according to the commentaries that, that I um, sought in this. But it's a physical birth. So you have to be physically born and then spiritually born, is what Jesus is saying. So theology for, for rabbis at that time taught that if you were a Jew, you were guaranteed eternal life. If you were born a Jew, you received eternal life. That's what they were taught in the first century. That's what Nicodemus would have been taught all of his life. But clearly after seeing Jesus, the miracles testified he was sent by God, Nicodemus is a little bit confused. So Nicodemus doesn't understand that Jesus is referring to a spiritual rebirth when he talks about being born again. So when you put those two verses side by side, you can see a pattern. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. If you're not born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is very clearly saying the only way to enter the kingdom of God is a spiritual rebirth, to be born of the spirit. Being born Jewish is inadequate. You have to have a spiritual rebirth. So before we move on, I want to point to a couple scriptures that tells us what happens with Nicodemus. Now, I don't think scripture comes out and says, at least in John it doesn't, Nicodemus was born again. (laughs) But we can infer from a couple cross-references because he's mentioned two more times in John. One is in um, chapter 7, and this is where it gets really ugly between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. It says, Nicodemus, John 7, 50 through 51, Nicodemus, who had came to him before, being one of them, said to the other Pharisees, Our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So the Pharisees were seeking to arrest Jesus, but Nicodemus says, Hey, shouldn't we bring him before us and hear what he has to say? So he's in effect, you know, defending him, giving him the benefit of the doubt. And then after Jesus is crucified... In John 19, 39, it says that Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea in burying Jesus. John 19, 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So scripture doesn't come out and say Nicodemus had a spiritual rebirth, but we can see he was involved in burying Jesus. I mean, you wouldn't You wouldn't perform that type of service for someone you didn't follow and love. So what do we learn about salvation from this discourse on the new birth? And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into everything Jesus said in John chapter 3, but I'm going to hit the highlight, which would, of course, be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this verse clearly gives us the underlying motivation of why God sent Jesus into the world to die. And it was because of his love, his agape love. And last week we talked about what that word means in the original Greek. And I'm not going to go over all of that again. But it is a love that values and esteems It's an unselfish love. 
Now, one thing I did want to share with you is the Hebrew word for love, because that in the Old Testament describes God's love, and it gives us an even broader picture. And I have a friend named Andy Lee, as just like I could talk about grace all day, she could talk about this Hebrew word for love, and I've heard her speak of it so much. It's the word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. It means kindness, loving kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, love, and acts of kindness. So it doesn't just mean love. It means a lot of other things as well. Faithfulness, kindness, mercy, goodness. And if you'll turn to Psalm 136, you'll see that this word kesed is repeated in each of the 26 verses. Psalm 130, let's see, make sure I said that right. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It says that over and over again, his loving kindness is everlasting. It's his loving kindness, his mercy, his goodness, his faithfulness, his love, his acts of kindness. It goes over and over. They last forever. So if you look at that underlying word, how did God love the world? With his kindness and with his goodness and with his faithfulness, with love, with mercy. That is why he sent Jesus. So Jesus is explaining how to receive eternal life. And it's through him. God gave his only son so that those who believe wouldn't perish. And I don't want to move on without just challenging you in the application. Have you made that decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? There has to be a decision. You can't just keep going on day to day without making that decision to trust in him. So if you haven't believed, if you haven't done that, see Pastor Terry, see myself, afterwards, and we would love to pray with you. So I want to talk for a little bit about eternal life. So when my children were first teen drivers, has anybody ever had a teen driver? When they were first teen drivers, it didn't start out smoothly. In a three-week time period, my two teen drivers hit four different things with three different cars. And I still remember the night after the phone rang, and to this day, I don't like when the landline rings. I wonder, are my kids home? Okay, good, they're home. Because when the phone rings, that's what I remember. And it was a, a bad night. And I still remember pulling the covers up over my head and saying, Jesus, take me now. I just wanted to be translated out of this world and into the heavenly hereafter. And as I've shared that with people, a blog, and I shared that in a blog, and what I learned from comments and emails and people approaching me, I'm not the only one who's ever prayed, Jesus, take me now. And really what I learned is, you know, we're longing for that heavenly home. But at that point, I just wanted the, you know, ticket out of here. But the truth is, you know, life on this earth can be downright unbearable, but we have a heavenly home. And that is, that is the good news. That is what gospel means. It means good news. Uh, Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we are not citizens of the earth, but we are citizens of heaven. In our heavenly home in John 14, 2, he describes it. Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And another cross-reference, this should be on your handout, Revelation 20, 3 through 4. If you need hope tonight, this will give you some hope. God will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Praise the Lord. That is good news. So we won't have the scars from this life. We will be in a place where we will be safe and secure. We won't suffer, and we'll have treasures there. Anne Graham Lotz writes in her book, Heaven, My Father's House, she says, the home you've always wanted, the home you continue to long for with all of your heart is the home God is preparing for you. He's making that place ready for you now. Because John 17, 24, I like this. Jesus wants believers to be with him where he is. Jesus wants us. He wants you. Jesus wants you. You may feel unwanted on this earth. Jesus wants you. He wants you. And he wants you to be with him where he is. That's encouraging. He wants us to be with him. So in that season of Jesus help me now, I knew I had hit the transition or I would pray, Jesus, take me now. I finally learned to pray, Jesus, help me now, which is why that rolls off my tongue. Jesus, help me now. I finally got to the point where it wasn't Jesus, take me now, but Jesus, help me now. I had to change what I spoke. But we do have a longing in our hearts. For me, when I'm longing to be in the mountains, to have a place of peace, to see the water, I'm just longing for the peace that's found in that eternal home. I long for it. I long for it. So as we're talking about eternal life, eternal life is both for now and later. Just like prophecy is for now and also later, eternal life, we can have it now and we have it later. John 17, 3 says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life now is knowing God. John 17, 26, and this is all in, in Jesus' long prayer that he has. says, Jesus will continue to make the Father known to believers so that the love the Father has for Jesus may be in us, and Jesus himself will be in us. So Jesus continues to make the Father known to us, and it's knowing God, Father God, and Jesus. On your handout is Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So the application, what are you doing to, to know the Father and Jesus more? Really, there's no pain, no gain. And you all coming here tonight, you're showing this is what I'm doing today to know them more. But you have to invest time 
and energy and sometimes emotional energy. You have to invest to know them more. That's eternal life. So I want to close with another gift, the last gift we'll discuss tonight that Jesus gives to us, and that's an example to follow. He gives us an example. And the cross-references should all be listed on your handout. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus emptied himself. And there are things that we think are our rights and privileges, but Jesus laid aside all of his rights. He laid it all down. I mean, he was in a place of glory and comfort and praise with the Father, and he laid all of that down for us. So we can lay down our right to ourselves, our right to be right our right to defend ourselves, our right to our own time, our right to comfort, our right to our checkbook, our right to our words, our right to our relationships. We can follow Jesus' example and lay aside our privileges as well. It says, have this attitude in yourselves. I mean, that's a command. Have this attitude in yourselves. He was humbled. Then John 15, 13 Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So what are you doing to lay down your life for others? And again, we have to stay balanced between rest and serving. There's a balance there, but we should all be serving in some way at some point. You might be in a season of rest right now, but the goal is to be healthy and to serve. That's the goal. And then the last cross-reference is probably the hardest. He, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane facing a humiliating and painful death and being separated from the Father. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And that's probably the greatest example for us to follow is surrendering our will to God and say, God, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. I'm willing. I'll obey. Speak, Lord, to me for your servant hears. That's the greatest example is to lay down our will and to choose the will of the Father. So in closing, we've discussed a lot of gifts in the last two weeks. I hope you see Jesus is a giver. He receives our worship. He receives our love. He receives our service, but he gives. I think he gives more than he takes. He gives so much to us. He forgives us. We have eternal life. We have a relationship with the Father. We have love and joy and we have comfort. We have satisfaction. We have Holy Spirit. We have an intercessor. We have rest. He gives us all of these things. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came not only to die for us and to become our Savior, but you came to give us gifts, and we thank you for that. You're so amazing. You're so 
awesome. Your love is just beyond our imagination. And we thank you tonight for all of these things that you give to us. And I pray for each one tonight that the thing that they need most from you, that that you would give that to them tonight. And I pray also that, that they would invite your light to shine on their lives, that they would have a willingness for you to convict them of sin. I pray that you would give them wisdom to know when to serve and when to rest. I pray that you would give them rest. I pray that everyone here tonight has experienced a new birth. I pray that we would all go to you to satisfy us, that we wouldn't seek those things that don't satisfy. I pray that you would quench our spiritual hunger and thirst. And we all pray tonight, Jesus, I want to know you more. Jesus, I want to know you more. Come and teach me and train me and speak to me. Open my eyes and ears to hear from you. Renew me, refresh me, retool me, remake me, remodel me, change me. Jesus, come and make us those people that have eternal life, which is knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. I pray that you would keep everyone safe as they travel home tonight, and we just thank you for the gift of your word and that we can come together to study and learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you all. So next week, Pastor Tom will pick up with the seven signs. It's Jesus, the miracle worker. Thank you. Thank you, Lord.